0: This is One Heat Minute.
1: Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Bro? You
0: look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven either. Robbery, homicides, take it. Out, Give me all you got! Give me
1: all you got! This and- Give me all you
0: got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me a podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me once again, it's been a pretty quick turnaround for this uh, great friend of the show and friend of mine to come back. Um, he is an incredible writer. Um, he has written an incredible book and we just talked to Kyle Turner you guys would have heard in the Kyle Turner episode we were talking about Public Enemies and I mentioned this man's great book Off the Map Freedom Control and the future in Michael Mann's Public Enemies he's the founder of the Minneapolis uh, St. Paul Cinephile Society and also a contributor to Slant and Point Magazine welcome back Niall Schwartz to One Heat Minute hi hello
1: hello I love love to be on One Heat Minutes I got about 40 of them for you
0: (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. We are presently rage reversing out of uh, out of car spots in LA um, with everything that we have left in the world, which is basically a small television in our car. And we're at the 142nd minute of Michael Mann's 95 Crime Opus Heat. And it's 2 hours 21 minutes um, on the dial if you're following along on your Warner Brothers Blu-ray. Slightly seconds out for... Um, Uh, for anyone with the definitive director's edition, but if you're just in the car park and Vincent has walked out of the major crimes unit and he's essentially going to shower and sleep for a month and a car he's just reversed in the driveway, you're right there. You're right there with us. So what Niles and I are going to do is we're going to rage reverse together out of this. We're going to marvel at the incredible performances of background and supporting actors and television's being kicked out of cars and then we're going to come back and talk to you guys about it. There it is, my friend. Yep. And I have a question for you. Did those people know they were in a movie, Niles? Did those people at the bus stop know they're in a movie? It's my favorite thing to wonder every time I see this scene. Oh, my goodness. I love it.
1: It, That question is very pertinent to my thesis for this whole minute, and that has to do with the, the tension between reality and representation. And I think, yes, they were extras and part of Michael Mann's talent, part of a great artist talent is to be able to represent reality in a way that it is uncanny. And this is where the television comes in. And in heat television plays a major role. I mean, the thing that the first witness for the crime in heat is the console TV man. TV man. He's the TV man who gets the word slick and that is exactly what just getting that word is what leads to, uh, Neil Macaulay's downfall really. Yes. So, so this, the movie in a way is kind of bookended by these televisions. And I think the central scene in the movie or one of the central scenes is where Vincent first encounters, Neil, and that's through a television. Yes, and that, in a way, is you know is interesting to me because when Vincent goes home after the that crime scene, his primary mode of intimacy is not with Justine, with his wife. It's with the TV. He wants. To eat his chicken, his goddamn chicken with the TV, <laughs> and and have a cheeky a cheeky sliver of Jack
0: Daniels to just take the edge off of the entire evening.
1: I feel yeah, that, that's my energy sometimes too. <laughs> but this this is all very interesting. But going beyond heat, and let's just go back through the corpus of Michael Mann. Let's go back to the Jericho Mile yes. and what those inmates are doing early on in the early minutes of the Jericho Mile. They're watching television and the emphasis that Michael Mann puts on television in terms of the world, the game show world that these people are seeing, a world of fantasy being realized, you know, normal Joes and Janes getting all this money and being surrounded confetti. It's this alternate reality. And that brings me to something that Michael Mann said when he was kind of doing a penological research for – Straight Time and Jericho Mile and Thief, uh, was that there were some guys who adhere to a philosophy that you do the time, you don't let the time do you. And I think that just by subscribing to the fantasy, you know, falling into the trap of, of um, television, constant television watching is in a way having the time do you. Versus Absolutely. You doing the time. Now and let's go further. Let's go to Thief and that really perplexing shot in Thief where James where Frank, played by James Caan, is about to unleash hell on yes. Leo, Robert Posky and yeah. company. Yeah. Yes. There's a shot, a very curious shot of who a character that I assume is Leo's wife watching a television. Yes. And she sees Frank or she seems to see Frank and then almost catatonically turns away from him and it's back a- towards it is a wonderful, it's,
0: it's the only thing that it's comparable to in heat is when Neil smashes Wayne Grove's face on a cafe table. Mm. And then there's a, a big burly, what looks like truck driver with, with glasses. A spectacle truck driver looks up and catches Michael Torito, Tom Sizemore's glance, and he yeah. looks at him. And in that moment, he makes a decision that 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 what he's looking at is too much trouble for him to still maintain eye contact and still think that he's going to get up and do anything. So he just puts his head
1: down. <laughs> Understands that it's best that he he even though he looks like a physically capable guy, it's not worth fucking around with these dudes.
0: No, it is not.
1: Uh, then, of course, Manhunters all about televisual images. The psychosis of Francis Dollarhide is someone who that it relates to. Images. He works at a photo lab. He finds his victims through uh, these family images, images of happy families, people that are, uh, have accomplished a life that he can't relate to at all. And Will Graham, what is he, he's looking at a television when he's channeling, when he really gets the, the flavor for Francis Dollarhyde and is able to identify with him
0: and and also um, in dolihide's gaze that's the brilliant yeah. thing of man is Hyde's gaze in the movie is video so it feels very televisual and then when will taps into that and he goes into the homes and he's ascending the stairs and there's this same video energy to the way that it's, the shots are constructed you're just like oh that's just like a that little deft formal touch yeah, a little a bit of static, a little bit of something. There's just something so deft in that that's like this is a great choice. This is someone who knows that you're sort of subconsciously manipulating people's perceptions here. It's great.
1: And e- even the character, the true life character, I think Dennis Wayne Wallace, the serial killer that inspired Francis Dollarhide for Michael Mann, mm. was someone who believed that he received uh, messages from TV and from uh, you know a, power lines, that kind of thing. But it, you know, in the and first episode, not the pilot episode so-
0: and hilariously, first- Francis Dolla Tom Noonan, is in heat, and he is literally snatching images, uh, oh. snatching information out of the air. It's a nice little
1: touch. <laughs> Michael
0: Mann has but a sense I mean, of humor, folks. He's got a freaking great sense
1: of humor. And the crime story, I think the first episode, not the pilot episode, but the first episode is about a serial killer who gets messages from a TV, yes. basically, yes. As, as I recall it. And, you know, crime story is also where we have the, first, the demo version Dennis Farina telling his wife's uh, lover, you know, you can't watch my television set. Yes. You know, done, uh, done, not with the flourish of Al Pacino, (laughs) you know, the Ralph scene and that classic scene. But, you know, we go on and on. Of course, the insider and Ali are all about image, uh, all about television and so on, and make us conscientious of how images are formed, uh, and how that uh, they affect us, uh, psychologically and culturally. Public Enemies, same thing with John Dillinger's experience in uh, in one movie theater where everyone is sort of obeying like automatons, look to your left, look to your right, and then a subjective experience of cinema as he sees Myrna Loy on the screen. And man's genius is such that he knows through his own manipulation of those images, which is nothing like Manhattan Melodrama, the movie that we're seeing in Public Enemies, Man knows that we know that John Dillinger sees uh, Billy Frechette. Yes, he doesn't have to flash back to flash to an image of of Mariam Cotillard. He, he he's able to transmit the information uh, just through Myrna Loy's face. It's so it's this beautiful sort of transmigration of the soul. I think. Which brings us back to Heat. Uh, okay, just. Can Getting I just say the- can
0: I just say everyone in the world who's listening to this, this is why I love Niles on this show? Like this exact <laughs> conversation. I'm having a great time. I hope you are. I just want to pause and say, this is precisely why I love Niles on the show. Let's get back into it. Back to heat.
1: How does Arch- Archangel Jesus de Montoya, how is he convinced by Jose Hierro that this is not casual? It's through watching a television tele- surveillance screen image of Isabella with Sonny Crockett. So so Man is conscious of how the Cops and Robbers movies that he's making can be very derivative. I think in interviews a lot, he uses that term derivative. And that's why even though they made great films, Jean-Pierre Melville and Jules Dessin, I don't think he likes being compared to them. And he's even even been uncomplimentary towards Melville, which sounds like blasphemy, and it kind of is, I think, (laughs) but... Uh, but, you know, he's not influenced by them. He's influenced by uh, real life figures. And this gets to, I think, his his um, interest in representing reality. And that could go back to his how he says that his three primary influences, Stanley Kubrick, Eisenstein. But uh, in this case, I have to emphasize, as I did in the first time we talked, Vertov. Yes. And the guy. And the struggle the agon of the artist to represent life as it is or life unawares and that, and that gets back to your observation of the extras and how they don't look like actors no nope. you know and but michael mann is a rare great filmmaker you know when dealing with movie stars whether it's will smith or al pacino or robert de niro or tom cruise he more than any other director that or most other directors that i could think of uh, has these movie star countenances that look unconscious of themselves in, in other words more, more natural than other movie star performances i want you know when you watch will smith and ali it feels like you're watching uh muhammad ali in a lot of ways it doesn't feel like this is a, a no intense I, th-
0: I, th- I think it's like he he's so aware that this larger than life, there's like a, there's like a larger than life energy that is contained in this, in this, in this form that is Will Smith. And then he's so good at, you know, um, sort of enthusiastically helping them strip that away. Like, it's rare that a filmmaker, you know, almost commands method, but like Will Smith's like, yeah, I want to do this role. And he was so passionate about it. He's like, I'll do 11 months of vocal coaching and fight training. You know, like there's, that's a huge life, and world commitment to do that and and similarly with Tom Cruise, like the biggest movie star in the world is breaking in in wearing courier outfits and breaking into restaurants like he doesn't do that for the average director <laughs> there's some there's some magical quality that he's able to convince people that if you d- you're doing these settings, you then get to you know you get to detach from all of the other b s that's in your life and paparazzi and nonsense, and you get to go you know you're just a person wearing a suit and you can you can travel in, in you can travel inconspicuously. I think that's a, such a thrilling thing. You know, all these guys are inconspicuously either in their characters or inconspicuously in these worlds. And, you know, what better place for Will Smith, the biggest movie star in the world, to hide than inside the biggest and most influential sports person that's ever walked the face of the earth? <laughs> like, it's just, it must be a nice holiday.
1: It, it, you know, and I think another guest on your program maybe it was you who said, referred to it as method directing yes. versus method act yeah that's and that's, i'll take credit for that one i think that's a little phrase that
0: i call that i coined method directing i find it <laughs> i i i i find that's yeah and it's less about you know it's more about um he's his imposition of method, you know, some people, I, I wouldn't say it's an imposition, but it's an inspiration. It's like an, it's an example of method. Like everyone's going to be prepared. Everyone's going to have the backstory. Everyone's going to read, no Beast so fierce. Everyone's going to do gun training. Everyone's going to have interrogation training. Everyone's going to have a backstory. Everyone's going to do interviews with people who've really experienced this because that is the paramount. I think that's what's, I think that's what man finds as derivative. He doesn't like, um, uh, and you get a sense of within the films. He's, He's way less interested in people whose whose intent is to replicate and to um, and to you know make like this weird simulacra of something that already exists. Whereas mm. he, as in another piece of art, you're just doing a copy, you're tracing, you know, essentially the elements together. He's way less interested in that. He's way more interested in like a tangible reflection of what something some an authentic experience is. So when you know, I like to go back to his. I I have this like as a permanent um a permanent link that I've got like a tab sorry opened in my Google Chrome and it's like Michael Mann's top ten actually eleven films of all time. And yeah. they are Apocalypse Now yeah. Avatar Battleship Potemkin, so Eisenstein, Beautiful, which is Alexander Alejandro Gonzalez in Naruto, Citizen Kane, Doctor Strange Love my Darling Clementine, Passion of Joan of Arc, Raging Bull, and The Wild Bunch. And his mm-hmm. 11th film is Nakashima Tetsuya's 2010 movie, Confessions. And I've never seen that. I've been trying to hunt it down. But in all of these, like, he's, 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 he talks about, you know, and, and one I think that when we're talking about real life, he talks about My Darling Clementine. So he's like, it's a fine drama in the Western genre, stunningly subjective, and cinematic Perfection. You know, like he's talking about these things. Wild Budge, he's like, no other picture captures the poignancy of the last of, a sense of the West of aging and the pathos of twilight. Like he's very, in all these movies he's talking about, and and beautiful, which is the lower depths of Barcelona. He's like street life, the human soul, resplendent with grace, pathos, love, poetry. You know, that's, you know, he's talking about authentic portrayals,
1: subjectivity and pathos. Joan of Arc, Carl Theodore Dreyer's uh, impetus for making that movie, or one of them was to accu- more accurately than any other movie, represent a historical event. Yes. And that that really, part of that comes through, I think Mann might make mention in that list that you talked about, the use of close-ups. Yes. And the, the kind of the chromatic, the new film stock that Dreyer was using to get those close-ups where you didn't need as much makeup. And Falconetti expresses so much through her face uh, in a way that is, to this day, you know, in a league of its own. Yes, I agree.
0: God, that would be but, something good. Can we just throw that into the universe? At small art house cinemas, every now and then, just like once a year, can you play Passion of the Drone of Arc? Like big, beautiful print. God damn, it's a beautiful movie. Minneapolis
1: that here at uh at, at our cathedral oh really <laughs> with uh the live uh uh choir uh doing the oh, voices God. of light soundtrack wonderful
0: absolutely yeah. wonderful did you get a chance to see it in that format
1: yeah. oh my goodness it was uh, the first time i went to church in quite some time <laughs> i was just gonna say <laughs> but I would get, I if, if that's know. what church offered <laughs> Old Prince of <laughs> movies with Coral scores. I'd be there every Sunday, <laughs> That's
0: literally. True
1: film. But this brings us back to TV and how TV frames human beings. I think in a you know a tacky way. It doesn't. It defines them. It frames them without dimensionalizing them. Uh, and but Michael Mann wants to harmonize real life, yes. and you know it, it, his, his movies don't have this. The same kind of—they're uh, a little bit more elegant than, say, Scorsese's anthropological gangster films are, yes. for example. Uh, people in Michael Mann movies are kind of dressed too good. They live—you've uh, brought up many times how they live in too good residences for probably their <laughs> social. Um, yep, we allow know. the
0: romance. That's where we get him to be his most romantic in his property choices.
1: <laughs> and. I- <laughs> And I'm, I'm, I'm good totally. With that. Uh, it's, but um, I think that here we we we, and approaching the minute. I don't know if we've approached the minute, but we have Michael or, or Michael Al Pacino, Vincent Hanna getting the the front get you know driving away with his surrogate partner, the yes. television, <laughs> yes. and you when it, you know it kind of rocks in the front seat against the dash. And um, the music that's playing is Michael Brooks' Ultramarine. Yes. And we heard this music one other time in the film. Uh, and that is when Neil is having dinner with his friends who all have partners. And we get to the sense of this guy who's alone. And as this music is playing, he goes to make a phone call. And you have that deep blue behind him that aqua blue kind of color as he's calling edie yeah. cut to eat just as the michael Brook guitar hits as she's in front of her computer doing her graphic design and it's an ushering in of neil's longing for another person for intimacy for you know it's not just the one night it's i want you here with me and, and so what you and the Brook score continues
0: yeah. Until they are being, they are the subjects, and they're being observed from a perch, from a, they're being surveilled from behind a sign. It's still, it's still lingering in into that moment too.
1: There's the other intimate relationship in the movie between Vincent and Neil, Neil. probably established at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's kind Who's of the a- loner blooming. Who's <laughs> loner. the loner? Yeah, it's uh
0: it's I think that that can come off really creepy Niles, but I think that you know if you if you're saying someone that you're attracted to and you're a heat fan and you're among friends and that person happens to be alone, I think it's totally fair to say. Who's the loner? You know, I think it's totally fair just for for anyone who's a fan of this show.
1: There, there are people who've often said that this movie is a love story between two men and <laughs> yes. that you that I think the film totally offers that reading. They're the two men who are made for each other. And, you know, I think Cam Collins, for example, is one critic, K. Austin Collins, who's brought that up, at least in his tweets. I don't know if he's written anything about it. But um, that just, okay, you have the ultramarine music playing, you know, which is about the longing for a partner. And it ties in with the ocean, the water, the, you know, the aqua blue from that earlier Neil scene. And then this minute actually... After he gets, after he ditches the television, he kicks it out as <laughs> yes. if Vincent is saying he's rejecting this partner, this alternative partner. He's just going to be his own person. He's just going to shower and take a nap for a month, for a whatever. Month. Yep. He's you know a room unto himself, a room of his own. Uh, he goes in the, that hotel room, and what does he step? in? he steps in water. He doesn't see it. Where does he put his keys? By the way, on My top hotel of the life. television. Yes, And he goes out, looks at that window, looks at the city, which is, looks like that iridescent algae, the same way that, uh, Neil and Edie, their intimacy was early on established. And at the same time, it's reflective of when Neil came home and looked out at the ocean. So you have all those ideas, you know, the city of lights, the water, ocean, intimacy, loneliness, um, All colliding, and I think in a way it all comes back to that song. And yeah, it's funny when it's hilarious. I think when Vincent kicks out that television, it's sort of cathartic. It's in a way, it's just the ultimate "fuck it, whatever." It's sort of everything. Sort of that. I think it's
0: it's so you know, there's such. As we just talk, as you just sort of articulated, there's so many elements and in this movie it's like a especially as we're heading into this this sequence, you know, it's the 140 second minute of a movie that has 166 minutes of screen time. And this final act that is just a whole it's a rich tapestry of all of these echoes of match cuts, of match themes, of match music, of match philosophy, of of you know inverted, um, shots that were seen so many times throughout the film. And I think what's so so funny about this moment is that before we have all of this great, you know, when he's in the car and the music happens, to get Vincent to this point where he's in this inverse moment, um, he he's exhausted every trick he has in the book. He's exhausted all of his mental capacity, all of his being able to read and and preempt Neil's behavior from that, you know, this really brazen thing of sitting in front of a coffee shop and in front of him. He's exhausted all of his leads, his traps. And in this moment when he feels like Neil's escaped the noose, this last thing, this defiant totem of like, I'm taking some charge of my life as I'm leaving this postmodern dead tech shithole house. He's like, it means nothing. I think in that weird way, it's like that TV means a lot to him in his little private quiet moments where he can just have a moment to himself and he can be quietly distracted. He can just let time do him in the evenings and nothing is, you know, the white noise of television just helps quiet his mind that is racing a mile a minute. But I think the defeatist kick of that television out the car, which is brilliant. And has these incredible, uncannily real and authentic performances of people perplexed that Al Pacino just kicked the television out of the car, which is my favorite thing to think. It's maybe the best extra performance ever because it's literally. I feel like if if this was these days, it would be like a person going on their phone, like going, "Al Pacino just kicked the TV out of the car." Like that's it's this great moment. But he kicks it out, and it's and I, to your point, I It's like is yes, it's catharsis. Yes, it is. But it's like. It's, so de- it's a devastating catharsis because it's like this last totem of what is real life. I've sacrificed everything to try and catch this guy and I've ended the, the, my third marriage and this is where I am and yet I stand empty-handed here. Like I'm, empty-ha- I'm empty-handed and I'm, and, and I'm, and I'm empty and, and there's no satisfying where I'm at at this moment. It's like the peak deflation. That kick is where he kicks away. It's just nothing left.
1: It's a variation of what Frank does at the end of Thief, in yes. a lot of ways. Big time, you know, just you know, not just where you know he doesn't kick the television, but he <laughs> blows up goddamn house and he blows up the goddamn Green Mill in Chicago, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know. But it, it, there's something as absurd and ridiculous about that gesture that you know it goes to uh, private subjective thing that only frank understands in that instance and just as the television only vincent really understands that in that instance and that's why it's a great moment because that's something that only one person understands it you see the cut back to the extras watching it what the hell does that mean the audience feels the same, you know i think we understand what it means on a very sub- subconscious level perfectly that's yeah. why it works yes but at the same time it's something he doesn't have for- to say a word that's what's For beautiful this individual, Vincent Hanna. He doesn't. He, that says as much as any other thing that Pacino has said throughout the whole uh, three-hour film. Would, you know? And that's a beautiful thing, I think. But yeah, it's awesome stuff. It's so
0: good. It's so good. All started from the console TV man, from Bosco's console TV man, and this TV that's been so important. And what's even funnier is that this is just a small touch, but he has a remote and he's holding the remote to that television. And the television is so close that he could touch the television. This is what I've always been perplexed by. It's he's so, he's so close. He can touch it, but he just won't change the channel with his hand. Uh, another interesting choice. More for us to ponder. But yeah, look, and we, we encroach on what is like a devastating moment of the film. And again, this is where the music flips from Ultramarine and takes a very somber tone, and Vincent's sort of melancholic observations, which sort of encroach into the next minute, so we won't go into too much detail, but I just love that there's a foreshadowing, and this is the distraction that goes to Vincent's mindset, which is, you know, again, to really, you know, at the same time as not bearing the lead with what we're about to see, we sort of get a bit of foreshadowing that something is not right. Um, But it's so anti-Vincent to not notice that, Mm -hmm. You know, to walk into a room and not pick up those details, like, this is the guy who's, like, pointing at things on a crime scene late at night, and he's like, I can see all the things that I want an answer to, and you better have an answer for me. And in this moment, he's like, well, I don't know.
1: Well, he's expired. He's done. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, we see him uh, have sex with Justine, and it cuts to him taking the shower. And here he's uh, as he, he he leaves the police station says so long, motherfucker, you were good, which is something again, bringing up this sort of homoerotic undercurrent. <laughs> but I, I think there's something to it that he says, so long, motherfucker, you were good. I'm going to take a shower. That's it. He's done. You know, we That's fucking the power of speech and, <laughs> uh, that applies to his professional life. He's just like, I'm done for the month. I'm just turning off. I'm. Going to a, a, a hyper real environment, a hotel room, which is not a, a real, quote unquote, real place. It's, you know, a duplicate one of many other rooms and one yes. big house, basically. And uh, yeah, meanwhile, Neil is in the midst of living his own fantasy. He's he's with he's with Edie and he's going to go kill Wayne Grove eventually. And, that, and, and, you know, that's where you're... Guests in the future will deal with, but something I want to bring up here and it has sit. to do with the, I, even though I've talked about the music, but um, the music for Heat. I don't know how many time, times you guys have talked about the source music for Heat because the mu- the soundtrack for Heat changed my life, and I loved hearing Ultramarine the first time when I saw Heat in the theaters. And you know, I got the soundtrack, and you know, on that soundtrack, it sort of as a teenager, that was sort of a gateway. To so many artists, and that was that was in the '90s and the in the maybe the early 2000s, movie soundtracks were kind of a gateway. And here you had not only the gold, but you had the Kronos Quartet playing gold. Kronos Quartet, you had yep. You've got Brian Brian um, Eno. Had, uh Michael Brook. I, I can never say it without spelling it Einstein, or without you know sounding Einstein Zonda Neubauten Yes, you know this industrial. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, a lot of goth industrial people and they, they love them. And of course it's, uh, Lisa Gerrard, you know, and this led me to dead can dance and William orbit, James, Daniel Lenoir. but most significantly, you know, there was Moby, but through Moby joy division and yes. your theme song, the new Dawn phase, you know, I'd never heard of joy division never. or new year yet. And then I was like, what, is, and what is this? And then I think train spotting came out the next year and yes. I got that sound and that had what's my favorite old time pop song temptation by new order. And I'm like, Oh, and it's written by the same people. And, but all, you know, the, all this music just sort of crashed, you, you know what I mean? It was such a, you know, this avant pop, you know, art rock kind of stuff. It was different from other, you know, like casino came out around in this, you know, within a month and, you know, it's a, Another great soundtrack, but it's pop standards and
0: yeah, lots uh, of classic. There's there's no there's no one better than a needle drop. I would argue there's no one better at a needle drop than Scorsese. Like there's literally no, no one that's better. And so it's it's the total it's a total contrast to this album. Like you've got you know we talked about the um, Giorgio Ligetti, the concerto for violoncello and orchestra, which um, is a Kubrick you know a Kubrick grab um, uh, from another Kubrick film. There's you know. B.B. Uh, King, Thrill is Gone. You know, there's there's, there's so much here. Steve Roach, um, um, you know, Solitaire, um, the Black Cloud music. Um, and Lisa Gerard goes on to do a bunch of stuff for the Insider soundtrack, which comes yeah. out later. So you've kind of got this great... Yeah, he's a... The Michael Mann Needle Drop um, is like... It feels like... A, it's all about organic incidental mu- It almost feels like incidental music. If you go into a club, that's where you hear the needle drop. Yeah, it's and, and the I other think- selections are so bespoke. You know, they're 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 theme tunes for characters without being theme tunes for characters. They're theme tunes for emotional um, emotional themes of whatever arc we're working on in that story at the time.
1: It, it works. It uh, that's the thing is that when I saw Heat, I was, it was I didn't know that it was a bunch of source music. I thought, yeah, well, this a lot of this is um, um, Golden Tall and the Kronos Quartet and, you know, for all I knew, New Dawn fades, you know, there's, there's so much guitar in this texture in the soundtrack. It could have been could Goldenthal. For could have been the, Goldenthal. I, yeah. I mean, if, capital, young, uh, you know, virgin ears at that time. But, <laughs> uh, but, you know, as time went on, you know, Michael Mann soundtracks, you know, I, I f- felt wonderful when Miami Vice came out because uh, a few years or a couple of years before that, um, It was the same weekend that Collateral came out, actually. I was on my way to a rock concert, headlined by The Cure, and Interpol and The Rapture, and this band called Mogwai was playing. And I was just becoming familiar with Mogwai, and I had bought bought, uh, Happy Songs for Happy People. And as I was listening to this, uh, driving to Chicago from Minneapolis, I was like, this stuff would be great for a Michael Mann (laughs) movie. Yes. Ah, this is wonderful for Michael Mann. And then... When Miami Vice came out, it was like, oh my God, two Mogwai tracks.
0: And talk about, but- you know, when you talk about, um, like, I was talking about, it's so funny in the previous episode, I was talking about Audio Slave. I'm like, Audio Slave is the perfect, like, at the, the time of, you know, Collateral, Miami Vice is like the perfect band to be in a Michael Mann movie. It's just got yeah. the, that, you know, there's something, you know, may you rest in peace. Chris Cornell's voice has just got this melancholy, and this steel and this grit that is just so—it's like all the things that a, a really uber cool Michael Mann character wants to be. Chris Cornell's voice can convey in a track, you know. It just like and and you know, Morello's sort of obsessively um, percussive guitar licks um, that are underscore that. It's just like, oh, this is great. It's great.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people shit on the the Audio Slave. I, I frankly find it fine. You know, I yeah, I understand why Michael Mann really likes Chris Cornell and it, it reflect, you know, as he says, you know, the, the vocal reflects the inner lives of his characters, I think. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's something I, I wish I, I don't, it's, I think it's more difficult these days compared to the nineties, even just to license music. It's like impossible. You know, when you think about all the music that Scorsese got in the mean streets, for as little money as he had or yes. even who's that at my door a student film in 68 uh you know like black hat has very little it has a, apparently a lot of source music is in it but it, it's nothing uh as i think familiar as what you had in vice or collateral yeah. or insider no, the the most recent thing that sort of flummoxed me when I watched it,
0: and and not nothing to do with content, but just the needle drops. I was watching Ricky Gervais's new show on Netflix, Afterlife, and it's As like, my- and it and it has it has ro- it has Robert Zemeckis level needle drops. Like it is unbelievable the tracks that 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 has, and I know that he's a quite a purveyor of pop music through the ages, so they're very sort of, you know, that's why I call it Zemeckis. They're very sort of pop relevant. You know, you know. Sometimes you'd say bordering on grating, gratingly obvious music choices, but they're huge. They're like Fleetwood Mac, and you know, just just massive songs that are happening all through this show. And I'm like, God, Netflix must have paid through the teeth for these for these needle drops. Like, unbelievable. You couldn't do that in cinema if you didn't have Netflix money to go. Yeah, I want to add this song. I want to do this. You know, maybe they got a discount. I'm not sure.
1: I'm sure that the The Irishman will you know I know that Robbie Robertson is working on the Irishman. He tweeted about it, yes, so uh, so I'm sure that'll have tons of uh, can't wait. interesting can't... I'm looking forward to it um, yeah, but anyway, uh, the thing the thing when I talk about the ultramarine and heat though, and we talk about how fast i mean heat was made very quickly, mm-hmm. at least post production, I think was very quick uh for a movie of that scale and yeah, two 24-hour editing teams working uh on different working on different times sorry a
0: 24-hour editing a, team working in two multiple suites
1: to give you an idea of how fast that was i saw i i told you last time that i saw heat four times theatrically yes the second time i saw it uh, you know how the film ends with a michael mann film yes Second time I saw it, a Michael Mann film was at the beginning of the movie. So I, it, it's like at the last minute, he was still juggling whether or not to have it at the end or at the beginning, I think. And some prints were made with it at the beginning. But when it first came out on VHS videotape, during this minute that we're talking about, there was no ultramarine music. He had, taken it out or they just forgot to put it in or something <laughs> thankfully, thankfully for the wide the letterbox vhs version of heat it was back in oh my god gives you 90 times i have bought heat
0: over the years but i was just gonna say uh, I've, I've got it i i definitely had a copy of it on vhs but it, but in australia that like widescreen VHSs in Australia were like, they didn't exist. The first one that I can remember that had a wide release for widescreen was, and and maybe this was in more, you know, um, cult video stores and things like that, but certainly in the suburbs where I was, like not an hour north of Sydney when I was growing up, um, the only widescreen movie I ever saw on a VHS was Star Wars. Like when they did re- reissues of Star Wars movies. Like they were like the first ones that became sort of, you know, popular locally. But, you know, at the time, definitely had heat on vhs had it on dvd then had it on dvd again for special editions then had it on you know blu-rays and multiple blu-rays and dvds all since then but it's so like it's so unconscionable now that people are like oh yeah like you you can't get a widescreen version like how strange is that in Yeah.
1: You've got the console console TVs. That that widescreen look, that letterbox looked upset a lot of people. And the first time I saw it, interestingly enough, was Last of the Mohicans, which went straight to rental in widescreen. Not in the proper 235 to 1, but in a kind of a compromised 185 to 1. Yes. And I know a lot of people that watched it uh, and were just – really pissed off because I said, oh, the scene is cut out. And I was trying to explain, no, you have more scenery, but you're watching it on a television that's, you know... Tiny.
0: Even if it's... Excruciatingly tiny.
1: It's tiny. You know, because this is pre-widescreen television. But even and like... So, in
0: most... Like, you know, I grew up with many it, TVs that are smaller than my 13-inch laptop. <laughs> like, you know, And way less clear. Way less clear. Um, yeah, it's so funny. It's so funny. But no, the, like, again... Uh, you know that's part of his artistry, right? Whatever he what is what he's driving with here is a very. It's 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 much in the same command that he has the emotional trajectory of the movie alongside, you know what people should be feeling emotionally alongside the characters and the performance. Um, I think a, a needle drop in a Michael Mann movie is often disruptive. Like he's having he's having to be. It's when he decides to be, you know, both metaphorical and literal at the same time that I feel like there's a needle drop. Like he can just go bang and throw like a big message and try and echo characters' inner workings. But Heat is such a work of subtle brilliance and the, these complementary factors that are happening over the whole spectrum of this big epic that I think any of those needle drops feel too disruptive at this point in the movie. This movie is like right now, especially where we're ratcheted up the tension, the final act of the film, you know, there's no. There's no lack of complete control that's happening in this in this final run to the to the finish line.
1: Mm. Oh my Agreed. goodness!
0: Oh my goodness! Well, look, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's the perfect way to exit. This has been an absolute thrill um, to talk to Niles again, and I, I I took the time to say it in the middle of the episode, but that sort of intertextual understanding of Michael Mann's sort of thematic journey um, is exactly why I love talking to Niles um, particularly whether it's like formal or character or influence um, and you know a guy who doesn't need to maybe keep a tab um, on permanently on his Google Chrome of Michael Mann's top 10 movies to know what each of these little comments and blurbs say about them but um, but I but I love him to death for it so Niles thank you so much for being a part of the show you've been a huge part your three episodes have been amazing and I just wanted to say thank you for being a part of the show if, if we don't get to speak before the, uh, the infamous end credits thank you so much for being a part of the show
1: i wanted to thank you for having me on the show three times i'm so honored and i i love listening to the show and i i admire so many other of the other guests and uh, it's wonderfully wonderful to be in such good company oh well
0: you're welcome you you belong here sir you're you're right here with with all of us other crazy people that are obsessed with this film and not um look ladies and gentlemen if you you're gonna do. You're gonna do two things um, at the end of this show. You're gonna go and follow Niles at Niles Files on Twitter, um, and then the other best place that you can find him is you can click on the link that's in the description to go and buy Niles' book. Um, and if you can't get a physical copy, or you don't, you know, you, you prefer a Kindle, that's how you can get it. That's how I got it, um, uh, which is uh, on Amazon.com. You can check it out off the map um, and Freedom Control and the Future in Michael Mann's Public Enemies, and it is an absolutely phenomenal read and you would have got a sense of niles's writing style in the way that he kind of traverses time and influence and theme and sort of how he then is able to bring it back to what he's trying to say in this very episode so it's been an absolute thrill talking to him about it so thank you guys for listening thank you niles once again for being a part of the show and all your support and generosity of time and spirit so thank you sir thank you guys for listening again oneheatminute.com is where you can find us and all good podcasting subscribers Thank you to Mr. Gars Franklin for our websi- uh, website design, Mr. Paul Davies for our theme, and uh, we'll catch you in another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. Just have a listen to some ultramarine and kick the living daylights out of that TV as you're getting out of the car. <laughs> <laughs>